This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, February 22nd, the Will Porn Be Banned in the Matriarchy Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, a managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Before we get started today, I just want to thank you for all your skincare tips and suggestions. There were people, listeners, throwing out, like, tips for June because she's not into skincare and just, like, sisterly patting Noreen on the back. Like, you don't have to wash your face. It's totally good. (laughs) It was amazing. And then we had one listener who was like, this is the most boring segment (laughs) that I've ever heard. But most of you were really into skincare, so thank you for sharing. Didn't you guys appreciate getting little tips in your inbox every day? From our listeners. I did. And I, I also didn't mind being negged either because I think, okay, yeah, keep <laughs> treat us mean, keep us keen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, British expressions. Okay. So our three topics today. First, the latest abuse scandal at the White House. Second, boys and porn. And finally, Lena Dunham writes about her hysterectomy. We reluctantly discuss. And for our Slate Plus segment, June, do you want to lead us in? Yes, Very exciting Slate Plus segment this week, which is whether ladies figure skating is sexist. If you want to hear that segment and get all of the great extras that Slate Plus members get while they are supporting Slate's journalism, sign up for a two-week free trial at slate.com slash XX Plus. All right. Our first topic, the abuse scandal at the White House. Wow, it's just coming fast and for a long time, this one. First, its staff secretary, Rob Porter, resigns after it's discovered that he'd been accused by two of his ex-wives of domestic abuse and that the White House, or at least the White House chief of staff, probably knew about it months ago. Then it looked like a speechwriter also had the same issue and wasn't getting his security clearance. Then it's discovered that Trump's lawyer paid a porn actress hush money to cover up the affair with Trump. So, I'm sure you guys are with me. It's not like it's totally surprising and you were like, OMG, I can't believe this kind of thing happened at the White House. But what is kind of alarming and different is that there is this whole infrastructure working to cover up bad behavior and sweep it under the rug. And so it feels different. And I feel like the Republicans are responding to it in a different way. So let's talk about that. First is like the one thing that I noticed that was unusual was just how long it lasted. Like Rob Porter resigned a few days ago and the scandal just keeps going and going. Do you guys have a theory about why this one seems to have lasted longer than others? I mean, I think clearly there are several factors. Partly it's that there was, I think maybe people are just expecting constantly that there will be limits about how sort of casual the Trump administration is about certain things like domestic abuse, domestic violence. Um, 
it's as you say, it's not entirely surprising that it's taken Trump so long to make any kind of statement about it. We really shouldn't be surprised when the man himself, uh, you know, does something or doesn't do something like that because that's you know that's how he is. That's how he got a. That's how he was when he got elected. Um, we wouldn't. I don't really expect him to change, but. This is something like you always think there have got to be limits. There have got to be things that you can't just go along with. And the fact that John Kelly, uh, who is you know supposed to be you know this the the adult in the room, uh, you know a general who's you know a man of honor and all of that, apparently knew about the allegations against Porter, kind of lied about them. Uh, you know, really, sab- you know, I guess you could say gave up his honor for this guy. Who you know? It's clearly not worth it. Um, it's it's a very like I think it's all about finding how far they'll go down this path of just messing with all the norms and just ignoring the just the standards of behavior that I think we'd all signed on to. Yeah, I think it's a few things. I think one, it's that um, Kelly was supposed to be the guy bringing order to the White House, right? Like Steve Bannon is out, the chaos agent. Who himself, by the way, has a history of domestic abuse, alleged domestic abuse, is out. Um, as does Trump, by the as way. Does and Trump. we'll get to that. As, yeah. yeah. Um it's a real it's it's a real uh, wonderful assemblage of men that he's he's surrounded himself with. So I think that's one part of it. Um just the idea that like even the guy brought in to clean this mess up is willing to cover up for domestic abusers if they are good at making the trains run on time. Um and two, I think it's like the visceralness of the image. Um, yeah. You know, there there was this really um, upsetting image of of uh, Rob Porter's first wife, I believe, with um, a black eye after she says he'd hit her, and that that was everywhere. And I think that's difficult for people to ignore. Um, I think some of the people who might look at some of the allegations against Trump, for instance, and say, "Oh, he just kissed her. Oh, you can't prove that. Oh, whatever." Like when you see. You know this this visceral image. How you, that's a little harder to dismiss. But I guess I'm not sure that Republicans have actually reacted differently. I'm interested in that statement, Hannah. Well, yes. I mean, I think part of it is what you said: the picture and the fact that you know, post hashtag Me Too, mm. a kind of story rises to the top that didn't used to in all of its details, like mm-hmm. the details of the early you know, years of his Mormon marriage, you know, the particular ways that he was violent. You know, it's a very realistic image of a domestic abuser. And we can hear it now because we make spaces for details in women's stories in a way that we didn't. You know, there used to be a kind of cultural resistance to the particularities of an abuse story. And now there isn't. And so and so I think it's it's extremely relatable. Like I think a lot of people who have uh, who have suffered domestic violence, been in abusive marriages, will hear these details and identify with them. And I don't know, that was part of my theory of why not my theory, but that's that's one idea about why Republicans would be responsive just because of the white woman problem. Like there actually is a lot of slippage in the February polls of working class white women supporting Republicans. And I think 
think a story like this, you know, people hear it, people identify with it. It's not like we now even receive him as just kind of a blank monster. Like the story is very believable. He's a charming guy. He has these qualities. This is a Mormon marriage. He was constrained the first day he pushed me down on the bed and he put his knee. Do you know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. a story. It's a story. It's a real story. Um, it, it started in the Daily Mail, but it's like it's kind of picked up details and steam along the way that I think, um, you know, women will read and, and, and kind of it will stick in their heads uh, in a way that I think scares the Republicans. I mean, that's the cynical explation for why, like, Trey Gowdy and Paul Ryan and, yeah. and people Mike Pence. Were, people were and Mike Pence and people were, weren't, you know, totally they were silent for like a minute. You know, there was like the Orrin Hatch moment where where it was like. Um, you know, we back. He's a good guy. You know, that bullshit when they're like, he's a good guy. As if, like, that's an expl. His wife said he's a good guy. He also just has an anger problem, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so so there was that stupid retrograde second, but then everybody else was like, um, no, you know? It was really interesting to me when Trey Grody got in, you know, the, the Benghazi guy, you know? This is, a, this is not a moderate Republican. And he, you know, said that his House Oversight Committee was going to launch an investigation specifically into this matter of security clearances, because one of the things that kind of came out of the all of these stories that's, you know, all of this stuff that's going on in the White House is that so many people are operating on interim security clearances because they have failed to get a security clearance that when they've when the FBI investigates them they find these serious problems you know s- serious problems that they don't feel they can approve a security clearance and yet they may, they continue to be in the white house on an interim security clearance and like that cannot be. And so it's interesting that we take this security angle. And yeah, Trey Garrity, you know, did say, and these are accusations of domestic violence. You know, it wasn't that he was, you know, didn't mention that to give him credit. But it it's also this other, you know, it's not a womanly problem. It's like, well, then we have security problems. Right. Which, which do seem completely unacceptable. Which are, you know, the idea that uh, someone would be theoretically open to like maybe blackmail, for instance, exactly. if they have these skeletons in their closet. It's not like this is about the FBI cares necessarily about the deep moral yeah. character and the way these people treat women. It's yeah. more like. But it's not just a security clearance problem. It's an anger management problem. Well, like, you know, yeah, domestic all. violence is like a tricky one in the workplace because you don't you can't I mean, you can fire anyone for any reason anyway. But 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 in general, there is like a robust legal discussion about whether if someone's accused of domestic Domestic violence, you should fire that person. And a lot of the legal advice is about, you know, you are essentially liable for putting your employees at risk. If you if you harbor someone who you know has a volatile temper and explosive anger. So partly is it's can he be blackmailed? He's dating someone in the White House. Yeah. Like you can see the problem a year down the road. Like his girlfriend is Hope Hicks. X, so like way. According to the X, okay, X, but like that, you know. So, so it's not that hard if you play this out a year or two. Like, it could create a lot of problems for the White House and a lot of problems of sort of intimidation of your employees. Like, it's a tricky one having someone who has a domestic abuse problem uh, as an employer, but who's not convicted. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's another. I mean, I think that is why this is so rich that there are so many aspects to it that someone can say this this security clearance is an issue. When I think we all would agree that's not exactly the issue, um, but it, this whole thing of alleged, accused, 
that allowed Trump to do go on one of his um, Twitter rants where he talked about you know due process and accusations and which you know in uh, in other areas yes I, I I mean well no I do believe in due process but as you say this is a slightly different situation because because of of, of what it re- says about these people who are you know against whom. Uh, very reasonable and credible accusations have been made, and what what it what it means to put them close in close contact with your employees. Yeah, I mean the boss's attitude towards this yeah. whole thing is really telling. And you know, I, I realize that the Trump administration was not exactly selecting from the cream of the crop of Republicans. There were a lot of people who wouldn't work for the um, administration, and a lot of people they wouldn't hire because they'd said bad things about them. But it really does seem like there's a whole set of um, personality traits that seem to have either been self-selected or selected for when they were doing the hiring for the White House. And, you know, it's a sort of aggressive, amoral kind of guy who seems to have gravitated towards working with Trump and wonder what that's I mean, about. And the women who love them. <laughs> and the women who love them. <laughs> the women who love them. I mean, there's some days when I feel like the, the, the quality they select for is like, like, um, like how how much can you stoke a gender war? Like how much can you just like yeah. just like whip up the man? It does feel that way sometimes. Like Steve Bannon was talking about you know the end of patriarchy, like all these women and their complaints coming to the fore. And we've talked about the manosphere and sort of the attitudes of the manosphere on this show. And I want to say that in that in the 1993 book about Trump, which was written by a Texas Monthly Newsweek reporter. Um, his first wife said he raped her and it was in a deposition. Like he 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 does have over a completely like vain and stupid thing. Have It's a story that's so ridiculous that you can't even, you know, it's like the worst, the worst, the worst of Trump. Like it has to do with like her doctor messing up his hair transplant or something like that. It's a ridiculous story. Um, but anyway, that that he raped her for that reason. So 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 develops this like big picture of exactly what you guys said, like people who just don't care. Um, Now, the question is, does this actually change anything? Like, does it at what or around the edges? Like, what could shift in the view of Trump? Is it more scary? Like it's you can sort of laugh and like watch the big man say his stupid things as my mom does and kind of excuse it. But do you guys think it's just kind of more scary when it feels like a kind of systemic chaos misogyny like does that freak people out more i mean it it's freaked me out since the first minute of the first debate i mean the first republican debate when essentially trump called a woman a, a fat pig and you know then made a specific comment about rosie o'donnell i mean in some ways that's silly but really fundamentally it shows his values and they're appalling they're they're it's a total lack of values and the fact that People voted for that is appalling. It's clear that that is, why would that not be the mood in the White House? Why would that not be the values? Why would they care about truth when the man just tells lies just every time he opens his mouth? How could there, how could that, how could things be different from how they are given who he is and the fact that he's the president? But I do every minute of every day of this administration. I wonder when we're going to come to our senses, but I wonder if we will. Well, Steve Bannon and I agree that the patriarchy is over and the matriarchy is coming in. And I'm sort of serious. Like, I actually think that they are, uh, you know, just exposing the grossness of the system in a way that 
all of our like feminist careful talking about or or complaining could never do. And they are just like really exposing it to be corrupt. So many people, um, obviously, you know, outside this this group that has a lot of power are sort of getting woke to this as a result of this. And, uh, you know, the matriarchy, it's on its way. But okay, one one other, one other thing about the situation that I just want to flag: um, the Washington Post had an article that I found really stunning in its heartlessness. Not the article itself, but the administration officials who were quoted. Um, they were quoting quoted saying that the um, school shooting in Florida gave them a reprieve from you know this this bad press and and the actual. This actual White House official said on the record, a lot of people here felt like it was a reprieve from seven or eight days of just getting pummeled. Like they just are so um, dissociated from, frankly, like normal human feelings that they were relieved that their domestic abuse scandal could go away from the headlines for a few days because a bunch of children were murdered. Like that's that's really bad. That's so funny because that is such like deep in Washington analysis. Oh. I read that story and like sort of underneath my consciousness, I was like, there's something wrong with this story. But because I've lived in Washington <laughs> too long, like I couldn't quite grasp it the way people outside. It's just not normal. Oh, no. Like that whole way of thinking is just so fucked up. It's just not normal. It's but I so didn't quite put my finger on it. <laughs> oh, my Hannah, God. do you think the matriarchy's coming? You know me. Do I think the matriarchy is coming? Um, I think a certain... I got in so much trouble once for writing stories saying the patriarchy is dead. Can I amend that and say, like, a certain kind of just, like, loose, dilapidated patriarchy is being toppled, you know? The patriarchy is acting out. I will sign on with you that the matriarchy is coming when the hashtag MeToo reaches, like, Wall Street... And um, and um, and just kind of centers of American power having to do with money and technology mm-hmm. and the future in a more real way. Then I'll say the matriarchy is coming. But for now, I'll say that, like, you know, a certain foundation of the patriarchy is crumbling. I'll put it at that. I'll All take right. it. I'll take it. OK, we'll take it. Patriarchy crumbling corners of corners of the edifice <laughs> eradicated um, shot down. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, boys and porn. Recently, the New York Times published a cover story called What Teenagers Are Learning from Online Porn. This is something we all kind of know, that there is a ton of online porn. It's all free, and the teenagers are definitely looking at it. But for me, at least, the story um, forced more than any other, kind of forced me not to look away from something I sort of know but don't want to fully digest, that almost all teens watch online porn. There was really just statistics in there about that, uh, and that they're using it as a kind of visual dictionary of sexual practices. Um, um, I am very interested to talk about this topic because I have lots of fights with my friends about it. Mm. Um, The first thing, but the first thing I want to put out there is there was a kind of crushing innocence to the quotes in this story. She interviewed lots of people in what was called a porn literacy class, 
And uh, it wasn't your usual, like, like sort of swaggering guys. Like, I've interviewed the swaggering young guys myself who watch porn. This was a kind of stumbling towards understanding vibe that these boys had, which I think is why this article affected me more than many that I've read about online porn, because it felt like they were trying to figure things out. And so you could almost watch the porn kind of making its way through their young, unformed imaginations more than in most stories, which captured just the like swagger, as I said. So one guy says, I would just do it, said another boy in jeans and a sweatshirt. When I asked what he meant, he said anal sex. He assumed that girls like it because the women in porn do. All right. So do you guys read stories like this and kind of take them really, do you feel alarmed and take them really seriously? Or do you have the feeling that maybe boys or girls watching online porn are kind of smarter than we give them credit for. That's the line that I, that's one of the lines I play with in my head. I I think both. I mean, I should say that I know very few teenagers. So this probably I'm reading these stories and, and using my imagination rather than relating them to real human beings that I know. But I do have faith that people, not only kids who are going to porn literacy classes, but that I, I believe that there is a level of media literacy out there that, um, you know, when you see something uh, on film, um, that you know that it involves actors. Um, I thought that the story of the porn literacy, like the things that that um, that I found most encouraging were, were, were twofold. First, that when these kids learned more about the porn industry really affected their view of porn and really kind of drove home that this is a business. This isn't like, you know, this isn't a YouTube video of of people, you know, real people doing real things. This is an acting scenario uh, that's made for money. That's, you know, where the the things that happen are done because they're the things that, uh, you know, make most money. And also that when kids... um, had sex, they compared what the things that went on in the porn were like to what it felt like to be, you know, in their own bodies with someone else in a similar situation and and said, you know, just fully clearly that was nothing like what happened in the porn. Like this is like that it's not real life. And I found that very comforting. But I also do find I, I do worry I do worry too. Yeah, I, I'm with June in that I think these are these kids are advanced in ways we can't even understand. They basically all are born with like a PhD in media studies. On the other hand, they have super young brains and um, images are powerful, and it's like quite a cavalcade of imagery that they're they're getting you know um, flashed before them all the time. But Hannah, you have um, teenagers, so how do you? I feel? do. I do. Um, The story, which I want to say is by Maggie Jones, because I think uh, she did an amazing job of just kind of getting to a different truth than a lot of people get to with this subject. Well, here, first of all, I I felt two ways about that thing you mentioned, June, about, you know, this education telling you that this is an industry. I felt that was an interesting way to go about it because it put distance between you and the thing that you were watching. It was also a bit of a literal minded way to go about it. I'm not sure that the intellectual can override the visceral and emotional that way, that like just knowing in your head, it's like saying, well, the death penalty is a deterrent. It's like knowing in your head that something is true is not necessarily 
necessarily going to erase the kind of feeling that you have and the images that get implanted in your head when you watch the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I and I also think they they they're smarter than the people teaching the class probably, and they know that that's not true. I mean, amateur porn is like must be a quarter of porn on Pornhub these days. It's not all like you know s- slaves from the Ukraine being forced to act out porn acts. Like it's not all you can't really portray portray it entirely as as this kind of uh, crude exploitative business. Um, here's what. Here's what my friend Mary and I discussed. Um, the, the 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 issue is so 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 a lot of times sex was a bit of a blank, um, like generationally. It's like you just didn't have that much information. You had to pick up bits and pieces information. Like I can remember all the bits and pieces, <laughs> like from my teacher in school or from what I, what I overheard adults saying, and from like little sneak peeks that I got at books or movies or, you know, walking down 42nd Street one, you know, a bunch of times when I was an intern there, like not on the street. I was an intern in an actual place on 42nd Street. But but that sounded funny. Is it a To be an intern at 42nd Street. It just sounded all wrong. But anyway, um, I walked down 42nd Street a lot when I was a teenager. So that's you not know, worse. You just did, <laughs> that's not, sorry. Everything I say about Forty Second Street it sounds bad, but you, you. The point was like I did not have full information, and so like I, I kind of had to stumble my way through it with other guys who are also teenagers, and kind of had to figure out along the way what it was. But like right now, the thing that's operating is a kind of glut of information and a totally false confidence that that information gives. And so there isn't any space for like, I don't know, you know, both in its kind of awe and its human experimentation. It's like, yeah, I know. This is how it works. Looks like this, you know, and you're kind of young. So 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 it does kind of look like that in the pictures. And I wonder, like, then you have to do the work of like unknowing and re-knowing. And that just seems like a lot of work. You know, yeah, and people don't do that work, right? Exactly. Like, not to bring up our friend Aziz Ansari or our not friend Aziz Ansari, but like, you know, one of the comments that people made about the description of that encounter that he had was that it was so porn inflected and so sort of dehumanized. Like, this was just a person who was there and they could do some things, right? And the thing about that stumbling with another person when you don't actually know what you're doing is you actually have to listen and figure out how that other person is reacting to things and like think about them as a holistic human being not just a set of parts right and that's like that's a good sex education i think yeah i mean well you say the word sex education and unfortunately that's something that's rarer (laughs) and rarer and you know maybe you know we may live in places where it does exist there are obviously states that do do decent sex education, but in vast swaths of the country, there is either none or actively false education, which I, I mean, I, it defies the word. And so that false confidence is all the more worrying because of the lack of, of kind of, I don't even know what about truth. That seems like a hard word to, to define in this context. I mean, there, there kind of should be some mystery around sex. Like it, sh- it always will be something that you're more driven by curiosity than like a factual, you know, I've got a fact base here. I've got my notes that I've made in my notebook. You know, like it's always going to be this like urges and curiosity and just wanting to figure things out. But clearly there are these big gaps that <laughs> everything's a little odd in this context. But there are there are areas where we there just are 
things that kids are not told. And so, yeah, they're smart and they do have this amazing literacy, but they it's just depressing to me that the thing that is available to them most easily is porn. Like well, that should not be so. Even in that even in that class in the Maggie Jones article, this totally progressive, like let's analyze porn critically, there's a moment where one of the teachers starts to tell them about like, you know, what are the ways like what are the actual anatomical ways a woman actually experiences pleasure and the other teacher steers her away because they can't talk about that, right? Like so even in this super progressive sex education, it can't be sort of instructive in that way. It has yeah. to be like clinical and at a remove. And that, to me, seems like the problem. Yeah. And, oh, that's like the only conversation they should have. You right. Know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The problem with porn is not that it's like, you know, necessarily, well, there's ma- many, whew, so many conversations I want to have. But the problem with porn is that it, 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 and this amazes me in 2018 that porn still looks like this. Like, its attention to female pleasure is almost zero. And I don't understand why. Like, I don't understand why porn has not changed at all. Everything I mean, else has changed and, and sort of moved forward. But porn is exactly the same in its understanding of what women are. It has remained at a total standstill. And I don't know why. Like, I'm sure that there are women who are watching porn even amateur porn. I mean, there's, you know, like you can find porn that's about women's pleasure, but you really have to dig hard. Most of it is entirely from a man's point of view, has an entirely fake and unrealistic sense of the the, wom- the woman having fun. Like, why? That's just, why? Yeah. Is so, it still like that? So this was my gut reaction to Ross Douthat's article, Let's Ban Porn, I think was the actual title. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tries to make the argument that, like, you know, feminists should get on board with this, that porn is harmful and the, and that banning it is the only answer. And and it seemed to me that like really took the conversation in a place it didn't need to go. It, it just seems like, why don't we fix it? Right. Like you can't put it, you can't, you know, stuff it back in. in <laughs> stuff that there. God, I'm amazed that's our first one. Like well, we that, had like we that. had some uh, in that hole. We did have some holes. We had but... gaps and holes, too. Yeah. yeah OK. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you can't turn back time. Um, is what I'll say. But um, you you can like maybe try to change what is actually on screen. And I understand fully that there are people trying to do that. I feel like I get a pitch from a freelancer about Cindy Gallup once a month, once a week, all the time that there is feminist porn happening. But like, and I know that that might be a Sisyphean task that the quantity of it in the world is so like large, but but that seems to me to be a more constructive thing rather than like sort of trying to change, uh, you know, First Amendment laws and and like wrestle with the Internet in that way. The the real. But feminist... I feel like that's a little facile. Like, can we just put? Can I push a little hard? Yeah, like, sure. I do not think we should ban porn because I just there's a million reasons why I don't think so. But I do feel like Ross has us like he has us pinned to the wall that like that we want it all. Porn doesn't change. It's like no matter what we do, and I totally agree with you. Every time I make this argument, somebody brings up Cindy Gat. Like somebody <laughs> brings up the one single like woman run porn thing. You know, it doesn't change for some reason 
And we have set ourselves like in our conversation with Me Too, we've set ourselves forward. Like people understand that like certain things don't fly, like the Aziz Ansari moment. But porn is like really 10 steps back. It's 10 steps back in in figuring well, this female pleasure thing out. It's about capitalism, right? I mean, even though, you know, we're talking, especially the sort of porn that was talked about in in Maggie Jones' article, is the vast quantities of porn that's available for free. So stuff that Cindy Gallup makes and, you know, feminist porn and conscious porn, all of that stuff, that's not free because that's about, you know, paying people and having good processes and that's not going to be free porn and free porn is what's going to be consumed. And I honestly don't understand the business model of free porn uh, but I presume that somehow dudes are paying for it, and so dudes get what dudes want. I mean, more more men are likely to get out their credit cards, I guess, at some point in the process. I, I'm afraid my my uh, awareness of porn is quite low. That's what depresses me, me ultimately, is that, like, if, if the market demand is there for, like, really sort of, you know, stuff that, that degrades women. Although I'm not sure. I don't know. It just might be a, like... Uh, this is out there, so then it's what people think they want, kind of thing. I mean, to me, the the like, if you if you if feminists take as their cause, even not in the extreme version that Ross is talking about, you know, the idea of banning porn, that essentially I think stigmatizes sex in a way that would really I think set the cultural conversation back and and and. Um, you know, reinforce the idea that it's somehow dirty and not okay. And I think that impulse that it's dirty and shameful is where some of this darker kind of porn comes from. And and so that just doesn't seem like the solution to me just as a, a way of progressing the cultural script. Although I do, I mean, I acknowledge that Ross's central tenet that like actually the thing that, that feminists and women are not saying here is that we, yeah, we're, we're upset by it like on, on some level. I think you're right that that does set the conversation back because our squeamishness around sex is part of the problem. And so and so that just having that, like writing that up on your sign in a woman's march, I think sends off the wrong message. <laughs> but 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 if you think of the, the, the central problem that that the kind of porn that exists now for free creates is a normalization of a certain kind of sex which isn't, in fact, normal in the actual bedroom. I don't mean like normal. I'm not saying like anal sex is terrible. I don't think that's true. I think there's lots of theories. Um, um, Oh, my God. How am I forgetting his name at Slate, who wrote the greatest series about anal sex? Will Salatan. Will Salatan once wrote a great series last time the sex survey came out about all our assumptions about anal sex and whether women do or do not like it. This was a few years ago and how we make these kind of sexist assumptions about that and all the proof around that. And it was it was it was really, really interesting. So so it's not that, but it's that it's that it it. It, it it's the norms. It it makes people think that certain things are true that aren't true, and it norms a kind of behavior around sex and violence, which which people don't understand. Like, might be a certain kind of fantasy, or it might be a men's fantasy, but is not something that actually translates necessarily into an actual experience, or they don't understand how it might translate into an actual experience with an actual woman. Um, so I I don't know. I mean, I it felt to me like porn education. Was a, like these YouTube. By the way, we haven't mentioned this, but like the the one actually successful pushback against this are the various sex ed YouTube stars mm-hmm. like Lacey Green and all of that who actually do talk about porn. They talk about kissing. They teach you how to do all kinds of things. They talk about every kind of sex. 
in and a lot of them are women and they talk about it in a way. So I that's always like where I put my flag is like there is a revolt against it. not a revolt against this, but there is another sort of online vertical that challenges the porn that people do tune into and really like. Totally. And and, you know, part of Ross's argument, part that I, I listened to him on the um, Slate's political gabfest, and he was sort of saying a little bit in jest, but also not that evangelicals have given up the moral crusading flag, right? You know, when they backed Mr. Trump, who we talked about in our first segment with all his morality, they sort of, you know, gave it up and, and feminists are, you know, we are inheriting the mantle of the uh, moral crusaders of of our time. And so he wants to push feminists to do this kind of thing. And I would say that, like, we should stay strong and not be reactionary, not, you know, and like push toward enlightenment, push toward, you know, YouTube instructional videos, not the banning porn kind of impulse. But the last thing that I want to say is that, um, you know, there is all this uh, literature out there that indicates that uh, young people are having less sex than ever, right? So some of the fears that people originally had about porn was that it would... um, you know, exposure to it would uh, increase the the risk of risky behavior. And, and I think the jury's a little bit out on that. But overall, like the direct cause effect, but overall, teens and even young adults are engaging in less risky sex, but also less sex overall. And it's really impossible to isolate that kind of thing. But I do think just on a gut level that like if you are a teenager who like hasn't figured out your own body, much less someone else's, and this is your image of what sex is, and it's like totally like every every sort of fetishistic version of sex that is possible is available to you, you might be a little scared of it. You might be even more scared than a normal teenager might be. And Oh, my God. The amount of just kind of like performativeness around sex without the actual, you know, tentative experience of sex in teenage life is amazing. Like, not just the existence of porn, not just our kind of open discussions about sex now. Like, you know, the culture talks about sex. There's New York York Times Magazine articles. We are in some ways kind of, you know, there's more acceptance of talk of sex in the public sphere. But the way teenagers dress now, which is not the way teenagers, that was not the norm of teenager dress when I was a teenager, is amazing. So you have all this kind of performance of sex without any actual sex, which is this current situation that teenagers are in, as far as I can tell. It's weird. Well, listeners, if you have any experiences with your teenagers in porn, any thoughts to share, um, just any any particular experiences which have enlightened you about the situation, please share them with us, either on our Facebook page for Double X Gab Fest, or you can write at doublexgabfest at slate.com. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. All right, our next topic. Lena Dunham. I am self-conscious about this topic. Noreen has made me self-conscious about this topic, but let's talk about our self-consciousness. Let me just say what we're talking about first before I make lots of qualifications because I've already made 20. All right, in a recent issue of Vogue, sound like Lena me now. Dunham. I know, I know, I know. And she wrote about her decision to have a hysterectomy after she suffered crippling pain from endometriosis. Uh, for 31-year-old 
for anybody, really, it's an unusual medical decision. Uh, It means she won't be having children, for one thing, but it's just an unusual medical decision in response to the pain she was feeling. But she does not feel any ambivalence about it. Uh, She wrote, I know it as intensely as I know I want to baby, that something is wrong with my uterus. I can feel it deeply specific yet unverified despite so many tests and so much medical dialogue. I just sense that the uterus I have been given is defective. So yes, uh, Lena Dunn did choose to write a story about it. She has been very public about it, or somewhat public about it, probably not about every twist and turn of her pain and suffering. Um, And yet there's something that feels wrong about discussing it, and I kind of want to start there so I'm not just self-conscious for the entire uh, length of the discussion, and I think that will lead us to an interesting place. So Noreen, can you just articulate what your resistance was to even raising this topic? Uh, I mean, I think it's inherently difficult uh, to talk about another woman's I mean it's not difficult it's very easy to talk about another woman's choices right Um, it's something that I resist right like um, particularly her reproductive choices right If, if it were her decision to have an abortion many of the people who have sort of you know questioned whether this was a decision she should have made would not question that decision, right? If it were her decision to, you know, have a baby with IVF, any number of other reproductive choices, people probably wouldn't have questioned. Um, but this one, the decision to sort of uh, cut off an avenue of of um, reproduction, you know, people are very happy to send. So, so I guess my resistance is like, I don't want, I'm not in her body, right? I don't know what was going on. Um, you know, women's pain, particularly gynecological pain, is underdiagnosed, underlistened to. Um, so, yeah, that's that was my sort of resistance. Um, and the fact that it's her too, right? Yeah. That it's like Lena Dunham, you just say those, say the name and, and a whole bunch of people like have a response before you even say what it is you're going to talk about her. And I think the fact, it only Lena Dunham could have gotten this response to this piece, not only because she's famous, but because we're all so, you know, we all have opinions about her body in a sense and about her relationship with her body. And her choices. Yeah, and right? her choices, yeah. yes. Um, and and I, so I think there's, there, there are a lot of reasons that if this was like by, you know, Jane Doe, it wouldn't have gotten this response. But I do think that it's really interesting um, as as a as something that happened in our world. Mm-hmm. And she wrote about it very eloquently. And, um, you know, it's not something that you see people writing about a lot. It also tracks particularly interestingly with the end of Girls, where the Hannah Horvath character sort of becomes an adult by becoming a mother, right? I couldn't get that out of my head as I was reading her talking about motherhood and her choice to sort of, um, you know, not her choice to remove her, have her uterus moved. Yeah, it's, you know, since you... um made me self-conscious about this topic. <laughs> I, I've i just been self-policing and it's been a really like, kind of neurotic conversation I'm having in my head because on the one hand, I feel like she could not have created a situation that was more Lena Dunham than mm-hmm. this situation, even though it's the real Lena Dunham. Because it's a situation that she's, you know, since she was in college, like just kind of put her body out there and then follow her own logic so particularly. I mean, she's very honest about the fact that that the doctors did not recommend this as a yeah. solution to her pain, that this is not she's she's an outlier. You know, outlier is different from saying, like, she doesn't know what she's talking about right. or anything like that. Right. It's just that she is a medical outlier. Like, this is not what you 
would find as a medical recommendation for this particular problem. So she's following her own logic, as she always does, involving her body. She's doing it publicly in Vogue magazine. So she's doing it publicly. This is not private, you know, in a sense. She's she's sort of chosen to write a first person story about it and 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 again it's like it's 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 like what she's always done so so there's a part of me that has to tamp down like is she challenging me like is this a challenge to the culture like go ahead and judge the decision i've i've made not just to make some take a decision that the doctors have not recommended i take with my body but that's a radical decision and that is going to foreclose the option of what all of you think women should do which is having a baby um and yet everything i just said is like not the proper response to have to this situation because it's not girls and it's not a public kind of um you know art project she's doing it's a totally personal medical decision so anyway that's my whole neurotic thing there's that all, I've been having there's also a complicated relationship with privilege that has always again has always been around lena dunham and has always been contested how much privilege does she have how much is she aware of it and i think this piece showed proved perhaps that she is very aware of her privilege and doesn't you know doesn't hide it in the way that some people do um you know where there's that whole bit where she talks about checking into the hospital and refusing to leave until the pain was gone which is like Good luck with that if you don't have either a a magnificent health insurance policy or more likely a really good bank account because like again that is just not an option that's available to women uh, so it's not just about her like determination it's about the fact that she was able to do something that simply isn't available to you know pretty much everybody else did you feel like there was a lot of cultural judgment around the baby thing? I actually was surprised at how muted that was and kind of heartened by how muted that was, you know, that people did not necessarily treat her as a pariah. It felt like a move forward to me for a woman to make a just like foreclose the option of having children and the culture not to die. Yeah, I mean, I did. There there was an interview in the cut with a with a um with a gynecologist who specializes in endometriosis, who who was a little bit, I would say, judgmental. I had some conversations with people offline where they um, sort of expressed a little shock, not so much at cutting herself off from the idea of children. I mean, she she did not have a radical or a total. I, I'm I'm going to get the terminology a little wrong, but she did not have her ovaries removed. There are ways that she could have children. She could adopt. Um, she said that it's something that's super important to her. But I think the 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 place where people are going to sit in judgment and, um, you know, the way that she writes it sort of opens it up to that is the the rashness of the decision almost. And it's not entirely rash. She obviously was living with pain for years and years and years. And she describes a really protracted period of pain leading up to this. But um, the doctor told her, let's wait and see. And she sort of jokes, oh, two days was enough for me. Like that's, you know, that's my version of wait and see. And, you know, having having your reproductive organs removed doesn't just affect your ability to have a baby, it affects all kinds of other functions in your body. Um, you know, like like a lot of the hormonally driven things that happen in your body, which is more than you might think, are changed by this. And so it is a really big decision. Um, uh, you know, so so right, the culture didn't explode. I think that's great, actually. Like I, I've been thinking more and more. I'm in my 30s and I've been thinking more and more about how like you know, the literature in literature, you talk about um, the marriage plot, right? Like uh, as a sort of, um, 
you know, that's that's how the novel goes, right? And I think in your 30s, it's actually like the fertility plot, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's like a race to this certain kind of thing before this end date in the way that in the 19th century, it was before your your sell-by date. And, and what she's doing is she's kind of disrupting the fertility plot in an interesting way, in a way that she didn't do on her show, you know, but in her in her real life, she's doing that. So I'm I'm interested in that version of it. It's funny. I, as somebody who just never wanted kids, I, I'm a little bit less um, kind of alive to that whole aspect of this. To me, the thing that is, is the, to me, what the story is about is her challenging the medical establishment. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, and it's because, yes, when people, when these various stories that ask physicians, oh, what do you think about this thing that she did? They talk about it as if like she's, that's really not recommended. And so she's challenging recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that the, the, I've been very interested in the way that there's been a somewhat muted uh, sort of expression of, oh, does she really know what she's doing? Um, you know, which obviously can be, and in its motivation is a kind of condescending, um, oh, she doesn't know, it's dismissive. Uh Rather than when really, again, it could be modeling a way of like, I've done my research. I know and I I really have made this decision that this, you know, as, as we've said, this is my body. I've gone through, I think she said this, that the hysterectomy was her ninth surgical procedure to to try to, um, you know, cure or alleviate this endometriosis. Um, and that to me is, is what really kind of called out in the story that you can, you know, what a person, again, who has money can can do even when physicians say i don't know if that's the best thing i don't know if it's right. clearly they didn't say no you shouldn't you can't we won't but she was really pushing beyond what they wanted to do right right that's a really good point i felt totally triumphant about that too that kind of our bodies ourselves sort of return to an intuitive notion which the doctors never meet with what they should meet which is like well actually we don't know we have no idea where her pain is coming from like it could be this we just don't know you know there are all these outliers and instead they're like well it's not medically recommended you know sure but you actually don't know where it's coming from like this is yet this is one of those cases where it's often a woman comes to face to face with the medical establishment and there's an air of sort of like you're crazy around it um, and an inability of doctors to just like take the humble path and say, I don't know, it's a mystery. Something's going on, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. You know? I mean, it was interesting that several of the stories, um, you know, re- made a comparison or brought up the case of Angelina Jolie, who wrote, you know, two different New York Times op-eds about her decision to have a mastectomy and then also to have her uterus and ovaries removed. And that was around cancer risk. That was around the BRCA1 gene. And that at this point is not exactly medically recommended, but, you know, not that far away from it uh, for women who make that decision. You know, it's, that's presented as a choice. You know, we we will give you these statistics about 95%. You can bring it down to 5%. Those were not the actual numbers. Um and so that is slightly different. But a few years ago, I think we would have and were like much more freaked out by those kinds of choices that women are making. Although people responded, I think, overall, like completely warmly towards Angelina Jolie's yeah. decision because like with cancer, it's your life at risk. Yeah. Right. And with something like endometriosis, it's pain. Right. Mm-hmm. And even though pain can be so all consuming and like 
uh, just take over your entire body and brain, that's still like you're not your life's not at risk. So people see that as a different calculus, even though like pain management, I feel like it's the biggest problem in medicine and and, you know, and causing huge crisis, social uh, and criminal crisis, crisis yeah, problems. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, but it's also it's also true. I know this from, you know, my own like I just remember once I had an ear infection. I was like, I just want to cut my fucking ear off. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I do understand that impulse. But it is true that I think that's another reason why it can the impulse to judge is so easy here because you're like, well, you're just making that decision because you're in pain. Like, I've been there, you know. But again, I'm not in her body. None of us are in her body or her life. So we don't know. And, you know, I once worked with somebody at a feminist or, you know, feminist business that was all women. And one of my colleagues had just terrible chronic endometriosis and, you know, was effectively out of business for several days a month. And I always wondered, like, if she hadn't been at a feminist business, if there hadn't been an all-woman workplace, would she have been able to, you know, be honest about what was going on with her body? I mean, because she still had to get her work done. It wasn't like she was getting time off, you know what I mean? But it was she was able to work around her pain and the absolute debilitating, you know, she could barely move. And that I wonder how much that is recognized in, you know, the vast majority of workplaces, which are not women-only workplaces. Yeah, I think it's cool she's talking about it. She actually wrote an essay for Glamour that didn't get as much attention in the fall before she had her surgery about how whenever she talks about endometriosis, the first thing people ask her about is fertility and what she plans to do about children and how it's going to affect that. And then they give her all kinds of – or they gave her all kinds of unsolicited advice and – you know, it's interesting that that essay didn't get the same kind of attention. Obviously, it was at a different stage in the process. Um, but so I think it's like good that she's opening up the conversation. All right. I think we've done a decent and respectful job of discussing this. <laughs> if I we do say so ourselves. <laughs> you, <laughs> you listeners. If we do say so ourselves, you listeners can be the judge. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, let's move on to our recommendations. June, what do you have for us? Before I get to my recommendation, I just want to put in a word for one of the other Slate podcasts. It's one to which we have some connections. It is the Political Gab Fest. Uh, Stephen Colbert says everyone should listen to this Slate Culture Gab Fest and who are we to argue? Uh, It's very smart. And the hosts, several of whom have close ties to the XX Gab Fest, one of our founding podcasters, Emily Bazelon, Hannah's partner in Love and Life, David Plotz, and newly installed CBS This Morning co-host Joe Dick- John Dickerson push each other to defend and explain the ideas they offer. They don't just nod along with one another in an ever-repeating echo chamber. Who would do that? The Political Gabfest also gets into the legal and philosophical dimensions of politics. And from time to time, they debate important topics like, is it better to be a dragon or a unicorn? You can check it out every Thursday evening. For my actual recommendation. Um, I want to put in a really good word for a book. This may seem like log rolling because um, it's written by uh, a Slate staffer and uh, someone who's very much in the Slate orbit. Uh, It is the book, The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, which uh, is by Isaac Butler and Dan Coyce. And it's an oral history of Tony Kushner's play, 
and uh, the struggle to you know make it happen and and then to you know what happened as it as it made its journey around America and then around the world. And I have to say, you know, this this is a, a weird confession, but I've been having a really hard time reading recently as somebody who's always been like a reader was, you know, how I separated myself when I was a little kid. I read early. I read a lot. And I've just been having a hard time reading of late. Um, and this was a book that was one of my first like returns to reading because it's such an interesting and such a, you know, it kind of pulls you in because it is an oral history and you hear from you know, from a lot of actors and, and from Tony Kushner and from uh, people involved in the theatres where the, the play was uh, trying to be presented. Uh, so it's a really, it's a, just such a page turner. So uh, I really recommend The World Only Spins Forward. And I second both of your recommendations. It is a great book and my husband is awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> both of those things are true. So I'm on board. Dan, it, it is a great book, by the way. Um, okay, so my recommendation is also a book, uh, This Could Hurt by Jillian Medoff. It's such a good book. It's a book about the HR department of a company which you don't really even know what they do uh, called Ellery. And it is about so much more. It's just about all the relationships between people in the HR department. They're growing intimacy with each other and all the dysfunction and all the friendship and love. It is the best book about office life. I feel like office life is so is so is, has so much rich material now that I work in an office again. <laughs> and this is the best book about office life that I have read. It's really great. Hannah, your husband, your husband also recommended that in oh. glowing terms on his podcast. <gasps> he did? Yes. And I, I put it in my Amazon, you know, wish list compendium because of that. And it, it's just funny to watch the book circulate in the Rosenplatz household. <laughs> but a double recommendation. Well, you know now I'll do it. <laughs> you know what the real truth is, actually, about all of these things? They start with my daughter. Oh. Wow. She, she reads them and then she gives them to david and then david it's like comes filtered down to me and i only get some of them because they those two read have very similar reading taste but they they know that i won't like most of what they read huh. they they have their they, they tend slightly trashier than i do <laughs> <laughs> i need their reading recommendations yeah i know i'm back on track real interested I, I like a trashy read you know oh noah's the cheap my daughter i mean she really she could give you like 47 pages of every <laughs> sort of slightly not like really yeah, yeah not really trashy like at the gone girl level you know for yeah, like yeah. the last 10 years mm-hmm. yeah. cool anyway go ahead. my recommendation is streaming on netflix it's an old movie um i finally watched paris is burning which is <gasps> um a documentary film about sort of very late 1980s new york the um i guess you could say the drag ball scene um but it it's it so it's it's these balls in harlem where um, you get to see what drag was like then, but it's also really about, um, obviously, you know, what it's like, what it was like to be gay in New York in the 80s during the AIDS crisis. It's like um, to be black or a minority and to be gay, to be trans. There's um, there are some people in it who are trans. Um, it's like funny. It's uh, affecting. It's sharp. It's really sad at points. And you see how much of like our current culture borrows from that. What was a subculture and how that's bled through. Um, it was just and it's like beautifully shot and done and and like really fun to watch. And um, I couldn't recommend it more. I'm with you. Yeah. Just like all the sisterhood on the recommendations today. Cool. All right. Well, that's our show for today. 
Thanks, as always, to our producer, Verilyn Williams, who just jumped in and did a shout-out for Black Panther, which we're all going to see this week. Uh, Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. Listeners, go and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review so other people can find out about the show. Tell your friends about it. We would greatly appreciate it. That's our show for today. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.